Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast, where we do deep dives into real estate investing. We obviously cover all the ongoing real estate news, market updates, but we talk about stuff like how to structure deals, apply different strategies to grow your portfolio, how to deal with troubled tenants, building your power team, and more. And we try to give you everything you need to know to be the best real estate investor you can be. So welcome back to all of our regular listeners. And if this is your first time listening, thank you for joining us and stick around because we do this every Tuesday and Friday. My name is Nick Hill. I am a mortgage agent, real estate investor, and lucky enough to be the co-host of this podcast with none other than the amazing Daniel Foch. Dan, who are you and what are we talking about today? Yeah, my name is Daniel Foch. I'm a real estate broker and director of economic research at a company called Rare Real Estate. And today we have a great episode for you where we have picked some of the top real estate stories in the news and we kind of unpack them, explain what's going on and try and add as much value to you, the real estate investor, as we possibly can in the context of those articles. And the news pieces that we're going to be covering on today's episode are number one, Toronto thinks it's the center of the universe, but the votes are in and it is not. What? Number two, yeah. Shocking. Number two, mortgage and title fraud, what it is and how to defend against it. Number three, the $7,500 grant from the federal government to build a basement suite for your grandma from the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. And of course, we'll touch on mortgages, both trigger rates and the number of arrears that we're seeing in the market right now. Dang, that sounds like a good show, bro. Yeah, you bet it is. I mean, that's what we're trying to do here. Yeah, it sure sounds like it, friend. Well, should we get into it, amigo? Yes, but let's do a deal of the day first. Today, we are in The Hammer, otherwise known as Hamilton. Uh, It is a port city on the western tip of Lake Ontario, the Niagara Escarpment, a huge forested ridge known locally as the Mountain and dotted with conservation areas and waterfalls. I think Waterfall Capital of Canada, I believe, divides the city. Hamilton has a population of 569,000 and its central Census metropolitan area, which includes Burlington and Grimsby, has a population of 785,000. The city is about 45 kilometers southwest of the no longer center of the universe, Toronto. (laughs) Yes. Just a quick rip down the QEW from Toronto to Hamilton. However, I find myself always getting stuck in traffic there. It is brutal. But with 60% of Canada's steel produced in Hamilton by Stelco and DeFasco, the city became known as the steel capital of Canada. And you can kind of see that when you drive through Hamilton. It's gritty, it's tough, but it's beautiful and it's full of potential. And today we are going to be looking at a property in the heart of it for our deal of the day at 14 Duke Street. Dan, I don't know if you've seen this deal of the day yet, but I I got a feeling you're going to like it. Yeah, I, I... I snuck a, a peek on it and it, it is a beautiful property. Also, I like that you mentioned Stelco because I actually, I collect dead co-hats as many of our listeners know and Stelco is among them. 
but it is a company that's still alive, but they did file. It was one of the biggest Canadian bankruptcies. So they filed for bankruptcy protection a long time ago here in Canada. I, I, le- I left that out. I thought you would, uh, I thought you'd jump in and, and tell us all yeah. about that. But anyway, this, this building that you're, you're showing me here is beautiful. Um, I guess I should, should read the, the address and some of the details. So 14 Duke yeah, Street. Yeah. Give us the, give us the description and some of the property summary we got here. Yeah. 14 Duke Street in Hamilton, uh, mixed use 20, 2300 square feet of commercial space on the main floor with 10 luxury furnished rental apartments located above. Uh, Sexy. Yeah, and it's it's on uh, 0.2 acres in the heart of downtown Hamilton. It is it is really a, a very very good looking building. It looks like almost like an old like badass bank building or something yeah, like that, you know. It's, very it's regal. like yeah, for sure. It's, yeah. Um, so according to Zumper, which is where we pull some rental info from, the average monthly rate for a short-term furnished rental ranges about 1200 up to 8k a month. So let's assume these are nice, but modest, one bedroom, one bathroom, furnished, and say we can get twenty five hundred on average, which I, I would say is probably an understatement. I, it is. I I I think you know I I wanted to be a bit more conservative here, but we can we can talk about that once we get to the landlord stuff. Yeah, I mean, and conservative might be like okay, yeah, if you're thinking after, if you want to make this a passive asset, right? So after you've covered all of your costs or whatever, let's call this a net cap rate. So the commercial, let's say it rents for five k a month. So you're looking at potentially. 30k, I guess, because you got 10 units at 2,500 bucks a month, so 25 grand monthly plus the 5k, 30k monthly, and that's basically 360k annually. So let's see what landlord.io has to say if you plug that in to give us some return metrics. Yeah, so obviously 360 thousand dollars annually sounds pretty damn good, but once we plug this into the deal analyzer on landlord.io, we look at the purchase price that stays the same. It might be a little overpriced as if, as you look to the time on realtor.ca is 139 days. So, you know, we're, we're, we're getting up there almost to that half year mark. Um, but stuff like this takes a while to move, right? Uh, expected monthly rent, 30,000. I put 50 grand in there for closing costs, likely more. Loan to value, uh, 66%. 34% down. So over 2 million. Put a mortgage rate at 6%, which, which is probably light. And then 5,000 in, in monthly operating costs. And what I did here, which was, which really started to change things, Dan, is I lowered the occupancy rate, thinking that these are short term rentals. You might. Or you're more likely, I should say, to have maybe, you know, a couple months here and there where, you know, a three month person moves out and, and there might be a month gap. But I did make a few changes here. The annual property appreciation, I put 4%, even though we've seen anywhere from, you know, 0% to 30% in the past couple decades that I thought, you know, six is the average. Let's make it a little more conservative, put 4%. Annual rent appreciation, two and a half percent in annual inflation. I left at a very, um, wanting 2.5% here. So let's look at the first year. Not great. You're losing $21,455 on your cash flow. Your cash on cash return is minus 1.01%. First year ROI isn't horrible at 10%, and it's at a 4.4 cap rate. So not horrible for for a building of of this nature. Dan, let's fast forward, get in that hot tub time machine that we enjoy so much and go 10 years into the future. Look at the long-term metrics for this thing. 
Yeah, so your IRR would be just over 10%, which I, I still think is a bit lower than I'd like to see it. Long-term ROI uh, after 10 years would be 168%, so about like a 1.68 equity multiple, um, 16.65 uh, GRM gross revenue multiple. And uh, or they have, sorry, they'd have it at a 2.69 equity multiple. Um, I mean, I, I like the property. I like the opportunity. I, I actually kind of can sympathize for the negative cash flow in year one, just given that this is almost more of a business. Like I could see somebody who's maybe retiring, wants to be the lay like the city of Hamilton and they want to be, um, you know, almost running like that. It's like a boutique hotel basically. Right. And so, you know, yeah, yeah, it really is. I mean, 10, 10 furnished units, like you're functionally buying a boutique hotel from my perspective. And so, you know, when you're in the startup phase of a business, it's not going to make money in year number one. You know, if you think about it from that perspective, you know, it could be rationalized a little bit. I'd say probably the the price is going to come down on acquisition for most people anyway. Otherwise, it would have sold already. Um, but that might be one way to look at it is, you know, you, you, this is somebody getting into basically small the small cap hotel business at that price point and at that number of units and, and the quality and, and luxury of the building, the type of the building, the location of the building. I mean, that's kind of the way I would I would really be thinking about this more as a boutique hotel than, than anything else. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, I was really looking for a cool deal of the day that, that had a unique, this is a here, cool, right? like the, sure. the short term and the mixed use. And, you know, again, you're right. Maybe a business owner moves in, you know, a business owner that is also a real estate investor moves in, puts their office on the main floor and then runs, runs the, you know, boutique hotel, as you're calling it, uh, upstairs. I was just Googling, um, the the history of this building because it's such a cool building i wanted i'm always curious about the history of these landmark kind of historic buildings um but that one that one came up the castle um just think it's it's in a really cool cool area like really you know old historic hamilton it's 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 got an interesting vibe for sure Um, i I love love the character of, of this building in the surrounding area while we're talking about things near toronto Historic, uh, historic buildings and areas around Toronto, places that could potentially be cooler than Toronto. Um, careful. Let's start off with, (laughs) let's start off with a funny article here. Uh, it says Vancouverites or Vancouver beats Toronto in travel ranking. Vancouverites are allowed to be smug. Toronto is ranked as the most disappointing Canadian city, according to this analysis. So the article reads, well, Vancouver, it seems like you've got another reason to be a bit self-congratulatory. The, this is the author's words, not mine. Yes, the, the full disclosure. <laughs> Toronto has been ranked as one, of, as one of Canada's most overrated cities, according to an analysis by independent, independent market company King Casino Bonus in the United Kingdom. Poll found 10.9% of visitor reviews found Canada's largest city disappointing, with the most regrettable attraction being the Toronto Zoo. I actually kind of <laughs> like the Toronto Zoo, to be honest. Yeah, it's like one same. of the cooler parts of that Toronto. Um, Leave the zoo alone. <laughs> this is funny. Like This kind of reminds me of when um, you know they... they I guess China had voted on their least favorite countries and Canada was there. Um, the, the market analysis company aggregated online reviews from TripAdvisor in December 2022 to compile the worldwide rankings. So interesting. So there's actually, they kind of give you an insight into the data science there of where this came from. Mm-hmm. Uh, Montreal was a close second to Toronto with 10.3% of visitor reviews saying, the city didn't live up to expectations. Its most disappointing attraction was the Biodome de, Mo- de Montréal. Um, meanwhile, Vancouver placed third in the ranks. 
9.3% of reviews found the city disappointing, with Gastown being the most underwhelming attraction. This is a very, very negative article. <laughs> this, I know. Like, they, don't, they haven't said anything kind of, positive yet. It's kind of funny. I mean, this is 10% of people coming hate hate Canada, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Gastown's uh, awesome. Ottawa and Quebec City rounded out the top five most disappointing big city destinations in the world. Uh, that When compared to the world's biggest cities, Toronto was placed 36 overall, while Montreal sat 43rd and... Vancouver 56 in global rankings of disappointment. This is like a disappointment <laughs> index. Oh man, pretty funny, right? So I, I I clicked on the company link that that weird company King Casino bonus and was like, why are these guys putting this together? Because I was curious. It, so it's weird. It's some sort of online gaming company, but they have this hilarious page of the world's most disappointing cities and most disappointing attractions in each one of those places. So. I know. I know. We got to get to the real stuff here, Dan. But let's just quickly go through one for one here. Maybe even. Maybe let's just do the top six. Okay. Um. Because because they're kind of funny. So I'm going to start it off here. Destination: most disappointing city, Bangkok. Most disappointing attraction: Koh San Roads. And the odds of being disappointed there are a whopping sixteen point six percent. I love that. That's their metric: is the odds of being disappointed. Uh, number two on the list is um Ant- uh, Antalya. The Water Planet Aqua Park, uh, or Aqua Park, sixteen point five percent chance of being disappointed. Singapore, be careful because if you go to Orchard Road, you've got a fifteen point eight percent of disappointment. And in Munich at the Deutsches Museum, fifteen point seven percent chance of disappointment. Okay, yeah, I may look. The list includes Miami, places in Italy, London, Paris, Tokyo. Let's move on to some some potentially ha- potential happier stuff. But uh, I feel like that's I like really. I feel like it is really like, and maybe it just it, we're at the point where Toronto and and much of Canada has become like you know we are one of those global destinations now, and it's this is almost more like an over overhyped list than it, it totally. Is. You know, and, and like it's like Niagara Falls and stuff like that too. Like, you know, I have a, a lot of friends from other countries who come to Canada and they want to see all of these these different things. And you're always just like, why, right? So it's like a it is it is very much a hype a hype thing. Um. Anyway, let's get back to some. I do think this is kind of relevant and funny, so I'm glad you, <laughs> you put this in the list of news. But let's get back to some relevant news here for Canadian real estate investors. Let's start with this one: How organized crime has mortgaged or sold at least thirty. GTA homes without owner's knowledge. CBC Toronto has learned that a handful of organized crime groups are behind these real estate frauds in which at least 30 homes in the greater Toronto area have been either sold or mortgaged without the real owner's knowledge. Those revelations came from a private investigation firm working for a title insurance company and to try and get to the bottom of the scams, which are costing insurers millions in claims. So how the heck does something like this work? How does one of these schemes unfold? Well, Brian King, who's president and CEO of King International Advisory Group, says organized crime groups start by looking through publicly available property records for a home without a mortgage or a small one where there's still a lot of equity left in the property. And that's what they target. From there... The groups who ultimately receive the fraudulent funds use stolen IDs and hire stand-ins, essentially actors, to pose as tenants to gain access to the home and other stand-ins to impersonate homeowners to mortgage or sell it. A lot of times they're petty criminals that are paid anywhere from five to 10000 to stand in and pose as homeowners. I can't believe this. This is 
But this is good. Keep take it from here, Dan. What happens yes, to the stand-ins? Yes, yeah, so the stand-ins, like the pair that the Toronto police were trying to identify through a press release earlier this month, are also being shared between these crime groups. So you can basically be like a rent a rent a stand-in, I guess. Um, rent a stand-in yeah. to impersonate a homeowner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and um, and after that, the mortgage or sale happens quickly for this for the sales. The fake homeowners often accept the first reasonable offer they can get. In in most instances, they're very sophisticated people. The money is moved out of the fraudulent bank accounts, usually within seven days, said King. It'll get changed fairly quickly, either into cryptocurrency and moved around or into gold bullion. Um, and often, and quite often, it's shipped overseas immediately out of reach of the authorities here. Uh, CBC Toronto reached out to people or Toronto police multiple times for comment, but no one was able to speak on it's title fraud cases. King says uh, these cases pose a challenge for police because the organized crime groups can have several properties on the go at once across multiple jurisdictions. Nick, you know a little bit about this, don't you? I do. I was lucky enough to speak to CTV National News, actually. I, and I made a little clip about it on my Instagram, at my buddy Nick, if you, if you care to go see that. Or if you just want to listen here, I'm going to tell you what I said. Um now, obviously, the first line of defense is to do whatever you can to protect your identity. And I don't mean just changing passwords, but actively protecting your driver's license, your SIN number, and all the other important documents. This means working with trusted professionals because people like lawyers, accountants, realtors, mortgage agents, and maybe even property managers have access to pretty serious information. Now, let's say a fraudster has a fake ID and forged documents. Well, that wouldn't trigger any red flags. And we've seen it, they can get around title searches, etc. You know, maybe this means that we need to start verifying identifications even further, right? So if they provide a driver's license, maybe we have to call the MTO to figure out if that driver's license, not just the picture matches, but the, all the numbers match up. Now, of course, the goal here is to not only protect the homeowners whose homes are being fraudulently stolen and sold without them even knowing, but to also protect the would-be buyer of that fraudulently stolen home. So the best way to do this, and this is after consulting with our paralegal team um, and, and several other people in the industry, is to register a second charge on the property. Even if it is a very small amount, register a second charge in a position, to, and that'll put you in a position to protect yourself. So if you already have a mortgage on it, register another charge behind that primary lender. Or if you don't have a mortgage, register a small charge regardless. Do it in your, your name, your husband or wife's name, or even in a corporation. That way, before the house is sold, you or that entity will have to be notified because you have interest in the property. Now, a charge is something very easy that a lawyer can do. A charge is a legal instrument registered on title that notes some form of third-party interest, rule, or entitlement that applies to the property. So go have a chat with your lawyer. Dan, anything to add to that? No, I think I think we're good. I mean, I just think it's kind of funny that um, you know this in combination with a lot of the you know like carjackings and major auto theft that we're seeing in in Canada right now, like especially in the in the Greater Toronto area. It's like a lot of people have been talking about Toronto as if it's like oh the next New York and baby New York and whatever this is. And you know, I mean, if we stay on our growth trajectory, there's actually a decently real possibility that something like that ends up being the case. And so it's like, okay, well, we've gotten to this world-class city status, let's say. These are some of the consequences that start happening with it, um, you know, and I think 
now people are kind of like wondering, it's like, oh, is that, is that really what we wanted? Right. So, um, yeah, it, for sure. it's an interesting place to be at as a, uh, you know, in your, in your life cycle of the city. Right. If anybody wants an interesting read on that, the life and death of great American cities by Jane Jacobs would be a great place to start. Nice. Nice. Love it. Okay. Let's get to the next piece here. Um, now, Dan, the next piece actually, I don't know if it started, um, on on a TikTok where obviously, you know, you were there dancing and pointing as you do yeah, on big TikTok. Dancer. And uh now I don't know if this TikTok was inspired by the article or the article was inspired by the TikTok, but regardless, Dan's TikTok made it into this article. Um the article reads, Has Canada's housing crisis reached the quote live at home forever phase? Um so I'll read the first little uh piece from Justin Trudeau's Twitter here and then Dan Feel free to jump in and do your thing. So this was taken directly from Justin Trudeau's Twitter, introducing the multi-generational home renovation tax credit. You can get up to $7,500 to add another unit to your home for family members. This will maintain traditions of multiple generations living together and help more Canadians find a safe and affordable place to call home. Daniel Foch A host of the Canadian Investor Podcast calls it the start of the live at home forever policy phase of the housing crisis that we're in. And you know what I love before I let you jump in here, Dan, is that both the Daily Hive and CTV National News introduced us as the hosts of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. Yeah, it was actually nice. The the Daily Hive even even provided a link to to the podcast website. Um, I see that. But uh, but yeah, I mean, this is interesting. So my... My statement was a little bit wrong, but I was tr- I was kind of just, you know, shit disturbing a little bit and being facetious uh, to the original tweet because, you know, he left out a lot of contacts, the, the prime minister, and it sounded like it's not they were like him. Well, I mean, regardless of, of whether or not it is, it, it, if you take that original tweet, it's like, we're going to give you 7,500 bucks to create multi-generational housing. And that's like, okay, well, so you can go give you $7,500 to subsidize the ability for your kids to live in, in their, your basement forever. And so I thought it was funny, but it's actually the opposite. So the way that the policy is designed, because this is valuable for our listeners, if they want to get $7,500 to add an in-law suite to their property is if you spend... So the person has to qualify, they either have to be, I guess it's within the scope of disability that qualifies or over the age of 65. And you have to spend $50,000 on a home renovation to create an in-law suite. And then they'll give you $7,500 back as I think it's a tax credit, I want to say, um towards that so that you can have one of your parents, let's say. I mean, the most, when I discussed this in the article, the most likely application of this for millennials, for our generation, or or the application of this being piece of the housing crisis is that people in our generation are going to say, I can't afford a house anymore, and I can't afford a house and to help pay for my parents to be in a, in a retirement home. And so I'm going to, I'm going to use this, this government program, and I'm going to get a I'm going to build an in-law suite in my parents. And and I have nothing like there's nothing wrong with that. I think the spirit spirit of the policy is actually good. I think that, you know, multi-generational housing is something that's executed well and it creates, you know, a beautiful life for many people outside of Canada and inside of Canada. And I think that encouraging it is is a good thing actually. But I, I think that it is it does say a lot to me that in an economy where vast groups of your population have been completely marginalized out of home ownership or even can't even afford to rent or own, right? Uh, and, you know, we're seeing the fastest growing household size, sizes being um, from, or the fastest growing household type is roommates. 
So our generation is, you know, basically co-living now that you would create a policy for that benefits boomers and that benefits people who already own homes. It just seems a little bit out of touch, which is probably that's more consistent with what I would say. You know, this administration is when it comes to housing. Um, the last people piece I'll say is like, there's got to be a reason why they would make it for boomers and for existing homeowners. And I've I've said this for a while. You know, we have an interesting predicament that we're facing with our healthcare system. We have an interesting predicament that we're facing with a pension system with almost one third of Canada's population. I think 10 million people approaching the age of 70, right? 10 million baby boomers in Canada. I think it's 9.7 million baby boomers or something in Canada. That's going to be a lot of people consuming pension. That's going to be a lot of people consuming healthcare. That's going to be a lot of people consuming long-term care. All of those are social services that the government provides. And so I think that they're kind of signaling, telegraphing here that they might not be able to, we don't have a strong enough system for all of those things to be as robust as they need to be. And so let's try and socialize that cost a little bit and the, this being the first rung of that. Yeah. Yeah. Great explanation. And and I mean, look, I, fair enough. I, I think it's one of those things where like the intention is there, you know, I'm bear with me here. $7,500, let's say, you know, the, the average Square foot cost per square foot across Canada is around three hundred dollars. You get twenty five square feet of of buildable square footage with seventy five hundred dollars. So obviously it's not going. And you know, realistically, let's say to you know add a basement suite, you're looking at probably minimum a hundred thousand dollars. You know, in in certain markets, but you can do it cheaper, I'm sure. But I I can't imagine seventy five hundred dollars going a very long way. In most situations, I'm sure I'm sure it will move the needle for some, but I don't know. Is it just more policy with with random money that doesn't really go anywhere and make sense? You know, I guess I guess time will tell. Yeah, I'm I'm interested to see. I mean, I think that we have a lot of we have a unique scope of challenges to face as a country over the next several decades, and and some of the things that are signaled by policy happening right now um, make me wonder what the most prominent of those challenges are going to be, right? So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. let's keep moving on. We've got two more articles here that are both related to one of our favorite topics, mortgages, of course, everyone's favorite topic these days. This one reads from Canadian Mortgage Trends, up to 80% of variable rate borrowers have hit their trigger rate. That's from National Bank. Nearly 8 in 10 fixed payment variable rate borrowers have hit their trigger rates, according to data released from the National Bank of Canada. The finding was released in a report that was written last week by the National Bank. Uh, financial economists Stefan Marion and Darren King, not to be confused with the same King that we are referencing in a different article, um, they estimated that between 73 and 80% of variable rate mortgage holders with fixed payments have hit their trigger rate depending on when their mortgage was originated between 2020 and 2022. Those are some pretty big numbers. So as a refresher, the trigger rate is the point where the borrower's monthly payment is no longer covering rising interest costs and generally results in the borrower needing to increase their payment. If you want a more in-depth look at trigger rates go all the way back to episode 13, understanding your mortgage stress tests and trigger rate. Wow. Episode 13. That feels like, feels like yesterday we recorded that episode. And and it's funny because that we were, we had, we were like, we have to make an episode on this because 
everyone's talking about stress, the stress test and trigger rates right now. And that was that, I think that's back in September. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, last week's 25 basis point rate hike by the bank of Canada will not go unnoticed by the 30% of Canadian mortgage holders who have variable rate mortgages. The economist wrote for variable rate mortgages taken out before 2020, the proportion that would have hit their trigger rate will be 63% compared to only 25% three months ago. So we're starting to see time catch up with us here. This is what we meant when we said recently that the negative impact of marginal rate increase is not linear at this stage of the economic cycle. So what does that all mean? Let's try to simplify that a little bit and break it down, Dan. From my point of view, essentially, with all the fancy language, they're saying, the mortgage rates, the mortgage rate hikes have not worked their way into the economy yet. So wait and see as we, as we watch more people deal with trigger rates, we watch more lenders respond and negotiate with their borrowers on how to deal with these trigger rates. And, and I think everyone's just so, you know, they need information, they need updates immediately, but this stuff takes time. Yeah. And I think it, what is it? Is it six to 12 months before a, before a rate hike or even just one rate hike works, it, it works its way through the yeah. economy. Yeah. So you and have a lagging several effect. of them. Yeah. We've like had a year's worth. So it's going to be exactly, it's going to take a year for us to really feel the full impact of this at a minimum, I would say. Um, it is interesting, you know, there's new information coming out and the next article that you have on the list, um, it, it sheds a little bit of light on it, but the, another one actually that came out earlier, I think it was like only 11 hours ago, but Yahoo Finance did a survey, Yahoo and, and Maru, M-R-U, um, or M-A-R-U, uh, 45% of people with variable mortgages say they would have to sell in under nine months. Um, Man, so I found that. Crazy. So, so again, like you're talking about, okay, well, why, if you just want to get an understanding of why this lagging impact exists, this is a thing. You really only have to pay. And we say this earlier on, we were saying this on the podcast, you only have to pay your mortgage once a month, right? So one month goes by, two months go by. Eventually you're like, I can't do this anymore. I got to sell. And this is why, one of the reasons why it takes a long time for the impact of rate hikes to be felt. The, the next one that you have on the list here is the latest in mortgage news. Arrears rate rises from its all-time low. Yeah, and this is a good one from Canadian Mortgage Trends. Yeah. So before we get into the article, maybe give me a reminder of what arrears means. Mr. Nictionary, can you take it away? Uh, yes, Nictionary. Thank you. Well, actually, you know, I'm a little offended. You defined uh, what the trigger rate was in the last segment, so we'll have to talk about that after the show. <laughs> uh, what are mortgage arrears? Arrears is a financial term most commonly used to describe a payment obligation that hasn't been received by its due date. So in other words, in more simple terms, a missed or late payment. So a mortgage in arrears is the same thing as not paying your cell phone bill on time. It's just you haven't paid your you haven't paid your mortgage, but of course there's financial, you know, terms built around that. So Canada's national arrears rate ticked up from its all-time low in October. According to data from the Canadian Bankers Association, the arrears rate, which tracks mortgages that are behind payments three months or more, rose to 0.15% from 0.14%. So pretty nominal still, (laughs) where it's been since June. That works out to just over 7,400 mortgages in arrears out of a total of over 5.1 million. Now, one of the, again, talking a little bit about why it takes a while for the impact to be felt. 
if you you know if you watch the big short it's like he talks about these different yeah he talks about these different tranches right and we have individual private lenders in the canadian real estate market we're gonna do a whole episode coming up on private lending how to do it how to borrow as a private private borrower how to how to lend as a private lender and use it as a way to make money in the real estate asset class but the risk a lot of the risk is in individual private mortgages and those are you know we've seen i've seen a almost 100% increase in power of sales in the in the GTA on the Toronto Real Estate Board. But the majority of those are coming from individual private lenders. So it's not that it's, it wouldn't be reflected in this data and it wouldn't be reflected in CMHC data which we know from the comments from Ben Rabideau's report a couple of episodes ago, we already know lags by 3 months. So it's 3 months before it becomes arrears and then 3 months before it becomes shows up in the data. So you're already 6 months before the actual data point becomes meaningful in the you know in the in the economy and so there's it, it this is why anecdotes are important listening to professionals in the industry seeing what's going on becomes important yeah very much so i mean at, at 7400 out of 5.1 million though i mean right now you know thursday february 2nd really doesn't seem that big of a deal i mean you know do we start panicking when it gets to 1% you know does it get past 2 or 3% I, I guess time will tell, but I, and again, it's frustrating because it's just such a lagging indicator, right? And and this goes to the, to the rest of the article. This is well below the highs seen during the pandemic when the arrears rate reached a peak of 0.27. So again, still not even half a point, right? And that was in June, 2020. The rate is highest in Saskatchewan at 0.6% and Alberta at 0.37% and lowest in British Columbia at 0.1% and Ontario at 0.1%. Now, with interest rates continuing to rise and a high possibility of a recession by the end of the year, expectations for arrears to rise are to more historical levels are expected. In this latest monthly housing and mortgage report for mortgage professionals, Analyst Ben Rabadou, who Dan just mentioned, and a good good friend of the show, and, and someone that we we look to for for great information of Edge Realty Analytics, noted that arrears are a lagging indicator. Tells us more about how consumers were faring nine to twelve months ago than it does on how they will fare in the near future. He did add that it does tell us that households are likely going into a potential recession in a better position than they did in previous downturns. So what are your thoughts on that, Dan? Yeah, so from my perspective, I think it indicates that, you know, maybe the maybe the recession that we're gonna see in Canada is gonna be milder than I might have anticipated and that a lot of people might have anticipated, given, you know, we're not seeing a lot of data points that are really making it alarming that there's a lot of financial stress, that there's a lot of uh, you know, disinflation or deflation or people losing jobs. So I think like so far, things haven't got exceptionally scary. Um, I don't think that that indicates whether or not, you know, what we can expect to see on the real estate side or the house price side or whatever it is. But, you know, you can take it with a grain of salt and kind of like recalibrate your assumptions on how you're going to be investing, how you're going to be looking for deals over the next 12 to 24 months in as a real estate investor or or how you're going to be managing relationships with your tenants you know get are you expecting to see some arrears you know using that word some rental arrears over the next little bit or maybe not maybe you were maybe you're budgeting that you would see at least one missed rent check over the next 
12 or 24 months and now you're not because it doesn't look like we're seeing a huge increase in unemployment. So, I mean, this is good news, realistically, if you're getting qualified people telling us that we're not in a, in a, a bad recession. Uh, and it's also a recession that I would say like a lot of people have priced in or kind of prepared for. I think that the people who are going to, you know, who, who haven't, there's been adequate time to prepare for this really, right? We've been looking at recession or inflation, sorry, for over a year. And we know the response to inflation is increasing interest rates. And so the writing was on the wall in, in a lot of cases for a lot of people. And, and I think exercising the options, the, the outs that you have was your responsibility as an investor, whatever you're doing. And there, it ends up being a bit of a Darwinistic phenomenon that happens to, you know, the, the ones who, who don't make it out or who have to offload an asset or whatever, because they weren't doing it right. And they didn't deserve to hold that asset through this. And they're going to start, they're going to learn hopefully from that experience and do it better next time. Um, but it, you know, paving a way for, for good investments that make sense, that are resilient, that are time-tested and true and stand and stand the uh, the test of time and can make it through a recession or weather a recession, regardless of, of the severity of it. I, I completely agree. I'd say the one thing I found a little surprising was that the, the actually the highest, um, the rate is highest in Saskatchewan where and, and Alberta, where prices are a lot lower than you look at the two most expensive markets in BC and Ontario. And the, you know, the, per, the percentage of, of mortgages in arrear is, is a lot less. Um, so just, just an interesting anecdote there. But yes, it's nice to finish off the news episode with good news, isn't it? Um, so just a quick recap, you know, looked at an awesome deal today in Hamilton. We talked about how apparently Toronto, Montreal and Vancouver are all very underwhelming from a, from a visitor standpoint, we looked at both Dan and myself's um, news articles where we actually were on the news and, and in the media talking about them. Uh, and then we, of course, touched on mortgages and arrears. So if you have any questions or if you have any news articles that you want us to talk about, then send them to the show and we'd be happy to unpack them. Yeah. And as always, thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. Please rate us five stars, leave us a review. And if you want to chat with either of us, reach out in the uh, in the show notes. There's an email address. Send us an email, DM us on social media. Uh, and uh, until next time, thank you for tuning in. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group. License number 10317, agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.